Hi there, thanks very much for coming along. So first of all, I'm Mick McAvoy, I'm Head of Factual Television at a brand new production company called Two Rivers Media, who's based in Glasgow. It used to be um, Head of Content, well it wasn't Head of Content, it was Head of Factual at STV Productions for a number of years, so made quite a lot of documentaries for a lot of broadcasters. So I'm joined with a fantastic um, panel, but we've got a little bit of information for you before we start. Um, we will be releasing podcasts of today's sessions plus original content over the coming weeks. Details of all our platforms can be found on the BAFTA website. And you can also tell us about your day. That sounds quite threatening. It could be a problem. <laughs> We'd love to see your highlights, not negative things. Tag at BAFTA Scotland on Twitter using the hashtag GuruLive and follow BAFTA Scotland on Instagram and share your snaps on Bebo or one of those things. <laughs> So, I'm joined by a fantastic array of talent here. I've got um, Hamish Ferguson, who's a commissioning editor for BBC. <coughs> Becky Reid, a fantastic producer who you'll have seen one of her uh, best films uh, recently on Channel 4, which was Three Identical Strangers. And Jack Cocker, who is a fantastic uh, director who's made an array of fantastic films and won a BAFTA Scotland last year for... Uh, it was the, the Rupert Everett one. Rupert yeah. Everett one. I was there. <laughs> I was there. <laughs> well, so thank you very, very much for coming along. So it's always good because I know there'll be a lot of people in the room wondering how do you get into this mad old business. So I kind of kind of start off about finding out, you know, how you guys got into not only television but also factual documentary. So Hamish, how did you? Uh, so I, uh, I actually um, started through a really, really good scheme, which I think still runs, um, which is part of the Edinburgh International TV Festival called The Network. And it was kind of a, it was an opportunity to go to that festival, which I did as a graduate. Uh, I did a history degree, so I had no media training. And um, by going to that festival, you could apply to something that allowed a few people to get paid placements uh, in London. So I did that and ended up being placed at a production company called 2-4 and had sort of three months subsidised, I think, to kind of try and make myself useful enough not to, to, to get taken on properly, um, which I did. So complete, I, didn't, I, I wasn't um, from London, so completely needed that actually to get a foothold at the time. And I think those schemes are brilliant and you know, well worth applying for. And then I, that was lucky in itself, but I felt... I, I, I always wanted to get into documentaries. Actually, the company I had a chance to start working for didn't do docs, really, at that time. Um, but just as I got there, it was starting to change. And over the few years I was there, it became a kind of, do- sort of nine o'clock um, documentary maker, a making company. So it was great for me because I was just in the right place at the right time. Um, but I think the great thing about that early stage of your career is being able to try your hand in lots of different genres and I, you know, I would never I'd say don't ever be sort of worried or snobbish about where you start working because you'll meet people or the circumstances may change and so even if you're not in your perfect <coughs> slice of the industry at first once you're in many many opportunities open up and that's what happened to me Becky, how did you make it in the business? Um, I wanted to be a journalist originally actually and I worked after a uni at a newspaper and I didn't it wasn't it wasn't my sort of dream newspaper but it was a good career opportunity um and while I was there there was a uh, an opening at channel four in commissioning in news and current affairs so I applied for that and then and started in that end of production um so that was also a kind of useful route in um but I sort of quickly found that the, the position I was in, basically, you couldn't become a commissioning editor from that position. I was a commissioning assistant working with the editor of Dispatches. Um, and I sort of felt like I was missing out on all the fun of, of programme making. You get sort of the beginning and the end of an idea, and I felt like there was another world that I, I wanted to, to learn about. So I was seconded to a production company, for, and then quite quickly after that, I, I think I was there about a year and a half, then I left to work in production, and I also came up to Scotland, actually. I was working at the BBC on The Big Questions, um, and then I worked at a company called Fine Stripe, a lovely company mm-hmm. based up here on the Bank of Dave, which was uh-huh. my first sort of doc experience. And I wanted to get into documentaries, really. I think I was interested in news, but then I found that the news cycle was so kind of... Um, I don't know, it was just so quick and and I really found it much more satisfying to spend more time with people and allow people's stories to kind of change and develop and 
Um, the relationship that you build with, with people when, when you're making a documentary is really important, and I found um, it just lends itself much better to that. And for, for me personally, it was a, a, a better uh, genre to, to work in. So, yeah. It does. Here I am. <laughs> and Jack? Uh, I, I got my first job through fixing someone's bathroom door. <laughs> I, was, I was a student at Glasgow Uni and I was working behind the bar in Stravagan and one of my professors came in, she had a bathroom door that wouldn't close and uh, I was living in a flat for free because I was doing it up for the landlord and she said, oh, are you quite handy then? So I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll fix your bathroom door. So I went around with my tools <laughs> and uh, her husband was, I realise this sounds Please like the... Don't no, I know, I know. <laughs> I realise this sounds like he's out for a couple of hours. Plot of a porno, but uh, he wasn't there. I fixed the bathroom door, and he came. He came home. That's not a euphemism. Um, and uh, he was a director at the BBC. Mm-hmm. And I, I was like, "Oh, do you need any runners?" Mm-hmm. And he said, "Give this. They're about to crew up for the Edinburgh Festival coverage, arts coverage. Give this guy a call and tell him I sent you." Which would probably not happen nowadays. I think you have to fill in a lot of forms and jump through a lot of hoops. But I was lucky that I got in there. And then, yeah, I got a job as a runner and just kind of. Uh, well, I did that one job. And then I, I, I went to America and worked as a grip for a little while on, on mm-hmm. movies. And when I came back, I, I managed to weasel my way back in. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think the, the switch to, to docs was, um, I got a job as a researcher on the film program with Jonathan Ross. And I thought, oh, this will be great. Because what I wanted to do was make feature films. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I'll be interviewing feature film people all day. And then I'll, be, I'll come home and I'll write my scripts in the evening and I'll work on my... And I never did. I was just mm-hmm. knackered. And, mm-hmm. uh, and eventually, I, I, I sort of started moving up through becoming researcher and stuff in docs. And at some point, I stopped dreaming of becoming a feature film director, drama director. And I was like, actually, I really love this. And, um, and then, yeah, I, I got a break, basically, from being a researcher to an exec who said, all right, we'll give you a half hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that went okay. And, and what was that half of? Uh, it was for a, a series called Art, Artworks. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> big fan of artworks. <laughs> uh, um, and yeah, he said they, they had one slot on the kind of roster, and, and if I could find a story, mm-hmm. um, he would let me direct it. So I, I went trying to find a, an arts story, um, and I discovered this guy, this painter called John Lowry Morrison, Joe Lomo. Mm-hmm. who um, was, he was on the Rich List, the Sunday mm-hmm. Times Rich List, and I'd never heard of him before, and he paints these landscapes and sells them in these galleries up and down the west coast of Scotland, but he, he earned more money than, mm. um, I don't know, Jack Vetriano, one of those uh-huh. other painters mm-hmm. everyone hates that earns loads <laughs> yeah. of money. Uh-huh. Um, and, um, and, you know, Madonna's got one and Sting's got one, and, mm-hmm. you know, so um, he lives up in Argyle, and I said, what about this guy? And they were like, all right, never heard of him, off you go. Brilliant. So it's all very diverse ways of getting into the industry. What kind of short piece of advice would you give to anybody that's trying to get into factual documentary? Uh, well, I think you. I, I think it's that find your entry point to television more broadly. And you know, like lots of us, you'll find. I, my, my first job was sort of as a runner on a Noel Edmonds live entertainment show, and. Um, you know, that, that kind of got me in. And I think you, as long as you're... It's sort of people, not projects, that will be your stepping stones to what you'll be interested in doing. So as long as you're working really hard and telling people what you want to do, somebody somewhere will pass you to the right person. So I, do, I, do, I wouldn't worry about what you're doing at first. I would just soak up the experience and it will um, almost certainly sort of lead you in the right direction. Um, Oh gosh, I, I I think probably just never give up if you really want to do something. I mean, you have to be so tenacious to work in documentaries. People don't want to be on camera. You know, nobody wants to talk to you about X, Y, Z. Nobody wants to fund your film. Blah blah blah. I mean, it goes on and on, and you really just have to keep trying. And one of the things I find often is, is especially, is that you might have an idea, and one commissioner might not like it one day, and the next week somebody else might want it on a different day. And you know, you just have to sort of if you really believe in something, you have to really just keep pushing for it. And I think that's, it's the same, similar, yeah, once you're in the door, um, you're making lots of different contacts and connections. And watch all the stuff that you like and contact all those companies. That's, that's what I did. I sort of would enjoy 
you know, think about the films that I liked to watch and the directors I liked who I admired and the producers of stuff and just shamelessly hounded them. Um, and, you know, it comes back around because now people ask me for advice about how to get into the industry. And I remember doing that, um, you know, 10 years ago. So I think don't worry about annoying people or um, because it's what you will do all the time in your job once you've got it. So I was going to say exactly that, yeah. actually, is that... Um, because I remember being at school and all the careers chat was always about keeping your options open. Mm -hmm. People said that all the time. And then I think actually there's something to be said for figuring out what you want to do and going after that and, 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 and looking at the credits on the films that you like mm -hmm. and finding the, the people involved in those. If, yeah. if, you know, if, you've, if you've narrowed it down to you know, knowing oh, that's the kind of stuff I want to get into, because if somebody gets in touch with you and it just sounds kind of general, like, I don't care, I just want to get into the industry, it's not as impressive as, I really love this, and I can reel off half a dozen things that I've seen and loved, and these are the reasons why, then it's like, all right, I'll take a chance on you. And it's knowing what production companies are out there, and yeah. knowing what they make as well, so yeah. don't come in, I've been in a situation where you have somebody come in and you say, what kind of programmes do you like? There's absolutely none that you make. Or yeah. actually, what do you just like? Or the programmes we make. Right? Yeah. <laughs> also have, have ideas. I mean, it, it, you, there are ideas that don't get made so much. You know, 80%, anyone who works in development knows that loads of really great films never get made. And I think if you go to meet somebody and say, these are the things that I'm interested in, or this is a character or... An, a, anything, you know, it shows that you have thoughts about that and they don't need to be fully formed, you know, commissionable films immediately, like it just shows that you have your own kind of stuff that you bring to the table that you know, you, you, you naturally will anyway I think if you're interested in documentaries, there will be parts of the social world that you're interested in filming or, you know, so um, don't worry that they're not good enough or that, you know, somebody's made a version of it ten years ago anyway, I mean loads of films get remade all the time in different ways, um so I think just feel confident in having ideas and don't worry too much about, um, you know, whether they could be better or whether someone else has done it better or someone else could do it better. I think just um, come to the table with something. So now kind of moving on to a kind of state of the, the, the nation piece where it's, what, what do you think about <laughs> the, the, the health? Nation. Yes, what's, what's, why is, the, con why is the country <laughs> fucked? <laughs> <laughs> Let's sort this out. These are three intelligent people. <laughs> no, so uh, let's look at uh, the kind of state of documentaries at the moment. So, you know, at the, on, the, on the surface, it looks a bit like a golden age of documentaries, I'd say, with the, the kind of the what's on, uh, on air. Jack, what do you feel about, you know, when you look at on television and on, and on the cinema screens documentary-wise? Uh, what, what, do what do I like? Do you think, or, no, what do you think of the, the industry at the moment? Is documentaries in a, a healthy state of affairs? It's, it seems that way. It seems mm -hmm. like there's more avenues than just the old school, you know, BBC, mm -hmm. Channel 4. I mean, I... Um, probably most of the stuff I've enjoyed recently has been on Netflix mm -hmm. um, and uh, I've gone freelance a couple of years ago after being at the BBC for about 10, 12 years and um, I'm, survive I'm paying the rent mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think it's in fairly, fairly rude health mm -hmm. Becky, well you've, you've been touring with your feature documentary How, you yeah, know, you've mean, seen quite a lot out there it's been, it's, I think the feature of Doc World feels incredible and inspiring and very kind of attractive as a freelance producer because um, I I've, honestly I found UK television sometimes quite difficult because you are in a sort of box that people, um, you know, people are quite keen to get bums on seats in, in, in jobs, right, to, to produce or direct films and my experience of of seeing what the independent landscape is like in the US. I don't know much about it in the UK, but certainly in the US it feels as if you have, you know, if you can get funding for an idea and you have a huge amount of tenacity and hard work and you want to make a film, then it's makeable, it's doable. You know, I mean, Bing Lu has just been Oscar nominated and that's his first feature, mm -hmm. Minding the Gap, which is a lovely film about a group of skateboarding lads. Um, <laughs> and so that feels really inspiring. I think... I think there's loads of really great documentaries on television in the UK all the time. I would like to see who gets to make them change. That That is a problem, I think, um, from my perspective. I mean, just kind of there's a, there's a, a small pool of very kind of um, a brilliant documentary filmmakers who 
get the great gigs, mm -hmm. I think. That's my And do you think personal. it's maybe geographically and social class? Yeah, all of those things. I think, it's, I think it's about commissioners not wanting to take risks on people who might be different or new, and single documentaries are a risk because, you know, it's going to, yeah. it's, it has one mm -hmm. chance to be mm -hmm. great. Um, I don't know. I mean, I know there are things happening to change it. I was part of the, the director scheme for the BBC last year. I applied for that and got on it and directed my first film mm -hmm. for the BBC. But then getting a second directing job has been really difficult. Mm -hmm. And um, I was actually told by somebody who works in hiring that it, once, you're in the, once you're in the directing pool, you're essentially in the same pool as the Ben Antonys and the Ollie Lamberts. Mm -hmm. So it is going to be hard to get a second job. And I thought, mm -hmm. well, that's, you know, it's really your job to change that, actually. And mm -hmm. how do we... Um, how do you get a sort of a second leg up, you know, and it's about having a good team around you, you know, documentaries are not made by one person, you mm -hmm. know, so if you're a new director and you're, um, you've got a great producer or a good AP and a brilliant exec and a, and mm -hmm. a supportive commissioner, then films do get made and people mm -hmm. do move up the ladder, so that's something I think is important, but... Um, uh, I think overall there's incredible stuff. Ne Leaving Neverland is the last thing I've really watched and thought was brilliant on television. Um, important documentary. Um, and other than that, I've watched a lot of more, as I was saying earlier, more kind of light-hearted drama type stuff. Because working mm -hmm. in documentaries does make you sometimes quite... Sad. <laughs> miserable, yeah. Quite, quite sad <laughs> you just need a bit of light relief cool. outside uh -huh. of your job. Yeah, so uh, I have mm -hmm. to say, I don't always come home and watch documentaries on TV. I watch <laughs> Fleabag and Catastrophe. <laughs> and as a commissioner, you know, you'll, you'll know what's coming up, you know what's uh, the output of the BBC, and you're involved in an awful a lot of great uh, docs at Channel 4. How do you think the, the state of the well, industry I, is? I, I, think, I think it's those two things that have been touched on. I think... Becky's absolutely right. I mean, it can look great because brilliant programmes are being made, but whether they represent a true sort of multiplicity of voices, diversity of voices on any kind of spectrum, really, um, is another matter. And I think, you know, it's, it's for all of us, um, but not least new, new entrants to the industry, to make sure we change that. And I think uh, that what, our, what we still do well, and I think is in really rude health, is good big documentary series, which do give quite a broad base of people, lots and lots of experiences, assistant producers, researchers, producers, directors. Um, and then equally, certain single films are an opportunity to take a risk you can't with a series. Um, so there are avenues, but I think what, what we need to instill is more confidence in a broader base of people and make those bases of production more geographically broad um, because it's still hugely London-centric as an industry. Um, and I think, you know, that thing about documentaries being miserable compared to drama actually is a really, really mm -hmm. big challenge for us all because the country is in chaos. There are millions of things to make us um, feel depressed, but also there are lots of things that need the documentary lens turned upon them. And I think we're doing quite well at interrogating our kind of cash-strapped public services. I think Hospital on the BBC is a sort of shining example for me of asking difficult questions alongside telling human stories that actually brings an audience. Um, because documentaries have to do more than news. It can't just report what's going on. It needs to offer you know, narratives and characters that <laughs> engage people for, for longer periods of time. Um, and I think the problem is, when with fantastic single narratives that are you know, doing brilliant things on Netflix and other SVODs, on the, at the BBC, you know, we are still trying to find ways to do pieces that speak to the state of the nation, but also are as compelling, so we'll compete for audiences with amazing US crime stories, for example. And that's a real, real challenge. I suppose one thing that a lot of people, because of the Netflix explosion, is, you know, huge eight-part series on a single-issue narrative, or, you know, and the fact even that Channel 4 have been you know, broadcasting feature-length docs recently, it does feel as though those big stories and big, you know, single ideas are, um, you know, very fashionable at the moment. Now, you've made one recently. What do you think is needed, and when you find a story like that, to actually be able to tell that story in forensic detail? You know, what's, what's the necessary components oh of a story to be a good series or doc? I think, um, I think, especially for a feature doc, if you're going to ask people to pay 20 quid or $20 or whatever to go to the cinema, you have to really 
have bring quite a lot to the table. And to ask anybody to watch something for an hour and a half is quite a commitment. Um, but I think with a feature film, and this, with Three Identical Strangers, it, it had so many bigger themes to it. So you you know you leave the film thinking about the, the things the, the themes it raises. So you're thinking about free will and nature versus nurture and parenting, and not necessarily about a scene in the film specifically. Just the, the things that it makes you think about. So I think that <clears throat> those are the really good feature docs for me. And, and I think with a series, I don't know. I have a a varying level of commitment to series. I, I don't. My staying power isn't always great. The last thing I've watched, big series-wise, that I thought was really remarkable was the OJ series, actually. And that, I mean, I was riveted for every single episode of that. And it, but again, it was something that raised so many big, important themes about mm-hmm. American life. Um, so I think it, it has to kind of go beyond just this is a, a story and this is a situation or this is a film about a person doing a thing. It has mm-hmm. to make you think about it for the next week or longer mm-hmm. or more. You know, I, I actually, David Nath made a really, really good three-part series, The Murder Detectives in Bristol, which was mm-hmm. quite a while ago. Yeah. That was the first three-part single thing. I think the mm-hmm. BBC put it out three days in a row, didn't, mm-hmm. didn't they? And mm-hmm. it was... Um, that was another really extraordinary thing. But it, again, it was three, not eight. So yeah. I think shorter is better, yeah. generally. Not everything needs to be 90 minutes long. Mm-hmm. Most things should not be, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, if anybody's tried to sit through, you know, some, some it's hard to make an hour-long documentary anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you're often sort of struggling, I think, towards the end of what, you know, um, the, last, the last third of your film. But, um, yeah. yeah. I find in broadcasting there's, there's a 10 o'clock line and it's got to have something special to get over that 10 o'clock mm. line to get yeah. people to the 10.30. And I've mm. made docs that was yeah. where first pitched as 90 and then I've argued, let's make this a yeah. stronger 60. Mm. Yeah. But BBC Two has, you know, you know, did the series that, you know, the after three parts, what do you think is necessary? And what do you look for? Well, we'd, we'd look for, um, again, as Becky's saying, it's like we need... Um, Beyond, to go beyond story. So on BBC One last year, there was Stephen Lawrence, mm-hmm. um, Stephen, a murder that changed the nation, which is a story that that sort of bears scrutiny and, and, and is big and complicated enough to work in its retelling over several parts. But there was real fresh journalism in the way that was made. Um, and so you, there were revelations in there for viewers that felt they knew the story. But in fact, there was relationships between members of the family that you you didn't know about and there are all sorts of other kind of dramas aside from that tragedy and the prosecution of, of those responsible I, I think you, you have to surprise the viewer but also there has to be a reason for us doing it certainly on the BBC so we wouldn't just retell a story however tragic or interesting or compelling if we didn't feel there were timely on, either ongoing rele- relevance or, or kind of new increasing relevance to a certain theme. So in that case, um, institutional racism in the Met Police was something that um, had, was acknowledged at the time and then more recently in some reports and, and continues to be a, a dimension of policing London. So it felt um, really important to do it. So I think for us, yeah, it can't just be a kind of box-settable yarn. It needs timeliness and, and, and justification. And I suppose one of the things that you know, you've done a lot of arts documentaries, Zach. There's one thing I, I'm often jealous of within the arts world is you can play with other elements of form. You can you can add animation. You can you know you can play with you know quite a few stuff a bit more in your armory. What, what do you? Because you've done you know single issue arts docs. What do you do to kind of just keep that you know that give that narrative arc throughout? It's it's kind of you to call them issues. I'm just thinking how. Pathetic, I feel, sitting next to these guys talking about <laughs> institutional racism in the Met. And, uh, you know, uh, all my stuff's just about fucking artists. <laughs> <laughs> but, <that's> a, <laughs> but they have the place. They do, they, they have, do. They do. <laughs> um, I, I guess, yeah, I, 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 do, I do feel like it's slightly sort of arty-farty stuff. It's not about something real, but within that, you but know... We need the, that. Cause, yeah. Because yeah. sometimes the real's too real. Yeah. <laughs> it's overwhelmingly oh, real. <laughs> um, yeah, no, the, you're right, though. Arts, art stocks do... They are a little kind of looser in terms of uh, your ability to play with form. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've used... I've used animation. I used animation... I made a, a film about an artist called Jeremy Deller, mm-hmm. 
and uh, we used animation in that to tell. There was a great story he told about when he was, I think he was about 18 years old, and he met Andy Warhol mm -hmm. for the first time, and um, he told a great story, and he had a few photographs of the night, um, and it was quite, it was funny and sort of slightly dubious, but um, I actually called a guy who I'd been to school with in a boy, um, mm -hmm. and who was now a, an animator, and said, do you think you could turn this into a, and it ended up probably being my favorite sequence in the film. Um, and I suppose in terms of, like, formally, most of the people that I've made films about are, most of them are about one person with a body of work. Mm -hmm. So you have that there to investigate. Um, and then it's just about ha trying to make it more interesting than just a chronology of, well, I did this, and then I did this, and then I did this. So what are the themes that come out of that? Um, as you get to know them as a person, what are, their, what are the things that drive them, motivate them, and how can you, how can you make it interesting or unexpected for, for a viewer? That's, uh, so this uh, session's all about telling stories, and uh, one of the films that came out last year on BBC Two was The Bank That Almost Broke Britain, which I worked on, and I thought I'd show a clip of it to show how <laughs> it was an exceptionally complicated story about the banking bailout, so we decided to make it easier by telling two stories at the same time, <laughs> so, which, which, once we're in the edit, you, you, you live to regret those moments. But uh, so, so I thought it'd be a good clip to show just to, to say about how you start a story and keep people gripped, and hopefully it did. My big regret in this one is I called it the bank that almost broke Britain, and I think that almost is such a cop out. <laughs> so ignore the almost. They really did break us. <laughs> you play that one. Since, since making that, I found out the other day that Fred Goodwin was also utterly infatuated with Inya. And I always, you always used any excuse he could to put in your music in any LBS corporate movie, which made me hate him more than I've ever hated. <laughs> Not only have you destroyed the economy, but in you. <laughs> but one of the great things about uh, working a documentary like that is that you make it for the BBC, you can tell a big, big story. Um, and it's, it was uh, 10 years on from the event itself. So, Amish, when somebody comes to you, you know, there'll be people they'll be pouring over calendars looking for anniversaries mm. and the like. What do you need? Because the way we refresh that is we told the story of how RBS became the biggest bank in the world at the same time as showing its yes. fall and we intercut it. Yes. What do you look for in a way to make something new and play with the form? Um, well, I love I loved that film and I think, um, I think in terms of making it a commissionable idea for a film or a series, it's on one hand, as I said earlier, we wouldn't just want to commission a good story just because it's a good story, but also there are good stories that take you into subject matter that otherwise viewers would be shy of because it's boring or depressing or terrifyingly complicated. So anything that says, here's an amazing sequence of events and some people that we can find to tell them that actually will take us into something everybody should be engaged with um, is exciting. I, th I, I, I love that that idea of telling something at, on two different timescales at the same time. I think often we look for an unfolding present tense narrative to intercut with a past tense narrative as well. So even if there was an amazing story from X years ago, if there's still something going on now, or in the, if in the making of the film you can manufacture something going on now, like a key character going to visit other protagonists in that story or with questions that are unresolved, that whose shoulder you're on, that is, a, is always going to sort of enervate a, a film. Um, and I think, yeah, I think what you've done there is a kind of a brilliant beginning of a film and, and is a kind of classic storytelling trick where if you've got one fantastic moment, you can look for mul multiple perspectives on it. So you have several interviewees that were there or knew what was going on, which is what drama so commonly does. You have one single thread of story, but lots of characters that are kind of orbiting it. And wherever in a doc you can find those people so that you can really maximize one key dramatic moment in time in your film by seeing it from lots of people's perspectives, you're always you know, in quite a good place. So yeah, I think it's it, always looking for new ways to, to tell stories um, and sort of enhance their relevance. Well, rather beautifully, Becky, you did that in a, <laughs> Three Identical Strangers. Yeah. And, that is like, <laughs> and so seamlessly we go to your clip, because it's a fantastic example of te telling one story 
fantastically <laughs> just catches you straight away. Could we have Becky's clip, please? That's a, that's a brilliant story, straight off, and it's, yeah. but it's beautifully told, and the contributors tell it with all the energy of they somebody who's told it for the first time. So, you know, you had fantastic contributors throughout with that, but, you know, how did you get them on board, keep them on board, and also the, the bit that I sometimes, you know, have the, the big one that you, you often have the big fight about is you try and tell the, the biggest story of the least amount of contributors. Mm. When did you decide we've got enough here to make to tell this story? Um, well, it was a sort of double layer of difficulty, actually, because Robert and David, who we are now very fond of, were extremely difficult um, contributors. It took... Before I even was on board on the film, Grace, another producer who had originally found the story and contacted them, had spent a couple of years negotiating with them. They'd had lots of false promises, I think, and had a really bad experience with lots of different media and just also with, you know, their whole lives have been orchestrated. So they had big um, issues, I think, with have, having no control over anything. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing you're asking from a contributor, isn't it? That you're going to have complete control over telling their story. So it was very difficult with them, and it was even until the day they sat down to do their interviews, which, you know, by that point, we'd known them for a long, quite a long, long time. Um, we were still not entirely sure that they would turn up, actually, especially with, with Robert. Um, so it was, it was really difficult with them, but I flew out really early on and met all of their families and all of their best friends. I mean, everybody, basically, which is sort of a huge research job of who are all the people in your lives who can help us tell your story. And we sort of got all of those people on board as well, and that FaceTime really helped. And slowly, I think, just kind of just by the nature of having to speak to them so often about so much detail and taking them back to, you know, this moment and that moment and piecing things together. Because we needed all that detail ourselves to to script what we were going to be filming. And so that just kind of, I think, just wore them down. So just spending a lot of time with people. We were lucky that we had a schedule that allowed that. Um, so that was kind of how it worked with the with the boys. And on the other side it was far more difficult because we had a story that the people who were involved in it didn't want to talk about. So we knew that other companies had tried to make this documentary before, back in the 80s and the 90s, and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists had tried to do it and not been successful. Um, and we knew that there was a really big, powerful organisation at the helm of this study that has been secret since it was done and is still under seal at Yale University. So that was problematic. And... Um, it was really just a kind of old school mission of trying to find names of people who worked at, at the adoption agency and at the Jewish Board of Family and Children's Services and on the study. And that involved sitting in, for days in Jewish archives in New York and um, going to different university libraries where there was ref papers that referenced the adoption agency and um, writing letters and, I mean, literally knocking on doors and having doors shut in my face quite a lot. So that's the thing I mentioned about just being tenacious. You just have to have quite a thick skin about the fact that some people won't want to talk to you and that's difficult, but you just have to keep going. And I think the, the, the point at which we knew that we had enough people... Our biggest concern was how to tell the story of what happened. What, what was this study about? How did it start? What were they trying to find out? Um, and I think when I found Natasha, who I'm going to, I'm just assuming everyone's seen the film. I don't know if you have, but there's a lady in the middle of the film who lives in California, who was, um, uh, she told us off camera was having an affair with Peter Newbauer, who did the study. But um, I don't and, think she really had to say <laughs> that. No, she did. Sexy. Yeah, she's she's really. Um, yeah. Anyway, so she she um, she was with him. In the, when the genesis of the, the idea mm -hmm. came about, when he was thinking about how he could solve the nature-nurture debate. And yeah. that was in about 53, I think. So when I found her, we realised that we had... She was, she's such a central person in the film. She appears right in the middle of the film and, and sort of reveals a huge, huge amount about the study and how it all came about and what they found from some of it as well. So she was a really important piece of the puzzle. Um, and I, I, I'd forgotten, but in talking about the film and at Q&As and stuff in the last year, I'd, I'd, <laughs> Tim reminded me of um, how, how I found her, which was embarrassing. It was not some kind of incredible feat of investigative journalism. I was literally sitting in the office at about 10pm waiting for a phone call. 
And I was looking for pictures of Peter Neubauer on Google Images, and I was just flicking through like this. Wait, literally, the cleaner was like hoovering around me and stuff. And um, I was just on like page 10 of a Google search, and there was this tiny little picture of her with an article, and it said, you know, in like the La Jolla local OAP newspaper or something, mm -hmm. really sort of obscure little <laughs> thing. And she'd written all about it, like a three-page thing all about the twin study. And I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> this is... I've spent like months in uh -huh. like, you know, trying to get these answers, and it's all just here on this, in this little newspaper. So um, I rang Tim, and I said, I I've found this woman, and she knows all about it, and should I... I'm going to call her. And, and we were really paranoid at that point, so we were worried about... Um, phoning one person who worked on the study or who was connected to this one of these organizations and, and that that would cause a domino effect of doors closing so we, we really thought carefully about every phone call we made and um i i looked up her phone number and then and i phoned her and she said um which will make sense if you've seen the film she said oh when are you coming for dinner and she literally was like oh, i'd love to she's talk a about it she's a, she's a yeah she's a, she's the most extraordinary character i think i've ever filmed so um so yeah and i said to tim <laughs> got off the phone and thought well, she's like 92 maybe we should fly tomorrow and like, you know, just, just in case because this is like a gold mine of you know so finding her was really the thing that made us feel confident that mm -hmm. that part of the film was going to be covered really well and you know she's yeah we had a very interesting day with her to say the least Brilliant. but jack you sometimes have the opposite issue that you know your film is on one single artist and it's somebody you're, you've got to follow them for a long while you've got to ask a lot of them and you know it's it's that must be terrifying at times so i'm just going to ask um, could we see jack's clip and then we can talk about how terrifying it is okay <laughs> <laughs> so in that film you're dealing with an incredibly acclaimed actor and writer he admits he's a despot he's at the, the height of his stress levels because he's acting in it and making a film how do you how do you retain a relationship with a contributor of that magnitude for that long? It's not really any dirt. Um, I, I know, just be, just be polite, be nice, mm -hmm. smile a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think um, when we started out, I mean, that took five years to make that, mm. that documentary, and uh, mainly because the money for his film kept falling apart. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it, I thought, it was like World War I, I thought it was going to be over by Christmas, you know? Mm -hmm. And then the money fell apart, and I went off and made an entirely other documentary, and then came back, oh, it's on again, and then, oh, it was off again, and went mm -hmm. away and made another one. I think I probably made about four other films during the course of that. Um, but Rupert was always... Um, you know, happy to, to have me come down, and we, we ended up getting on uh, pretty well. Um, I, I never used to think, um, like, I, I, I worked on the culture show when I was sort of coming up through the ranks, and that would be like little five, six minute things, and I always felt like a bit of a, like a bit of a leech, you know, because you'd be sent in as a director, and you, you were making a, a little VT, a five minute thing about a creative person and mm -hmm. what they've been doing. And I always felt like a bit of a, like, you know, mm -hmm. you just be that sent in there and, and I'm just the telly guy and you're the creative guy. Mm -hmm. And uh, I never really felt like I could actually become mates with them mm -hmm. because it, in my head it was just, well, I'm just, you know, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, I think something changed with the, the Jeremy Deller film that I made where we got on really well and I got to know his family mm -hmm. and we stayed friends afterwards and I didn't feel embarrassed ringing him up to say, I'm going to be in London this weekend, do you fancy a pint? And, um, and so I think that, that happening with that made me feel, oh, yeah, I've, I've, I am allowed to be here and kind of on a par with you, you mm. know. And um, so with Rupert, yeah, I would, uh, sometimes we'd go for dinner when, if I was in London and mm -hmm. I didn't have a camera with me, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess gradually you just build up. I mean, if I was, uh, well, I said it sounds kind of big headed, but I was going to say, if, if I was a total dick, yes. <laughs> maybe I am a total dick, I don't know. No, but, no, no, but, no, no. But, but if I was, then it probably wouldn't, wouldn't happen that way. Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I would admit that, like, it is probably slightly um, manipulative in a way, because, mm -hmm. like, you want them to like you, Yeah, mm -hmm. you know. But I'm not. I'm not manipulating him. Yeah. I, I want everyone to like me. So. That's, yeah. that's, that's, <laughs> basically, the key is just be really popular with people, that's, and then you can make documentaries. Yeah. 
Easy. Yeah. Empathetic, I suppose. Yeah. 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 But um, yeah. So that's yeah. Just just mm-hmm. just smile and be nice. <laughs> now going from one keeping one contributor happy to keeping lots and lots of contributors happy because you've been uh, involved in some really really fantastic access based doc series, and um, I'll let you see one of uh, Hamish's clips. This is from the the school. Now, I think that's fantastic. The first scene especially, it kind of shows to me how access has changed in the last uh, even three, four years. From, you know, six, seven years ago, you could go to a commissioner and say, I've got access to a school, and you would see a programme about kids in a school. Now you, you can see access as in the stuff that you would never have imagined you would have seen, like those meetings, you know, mm. when key decisions are being made. And I think that headmaster, you actually filmed him writing his resi- was it resignation Yeah, he, res- he resigned at the end mm-hmm. of the year, yeah. So how do you negotiate that level of access and sustain it? Because that's the other thing, you know, for a, a substantial amount of time. Well, I, the ambition with that series, two of the films in that series was, were about that school, which was in special measures and sort of imploding. So had a sort of grand narrative of its own, was to get multiple perspectives on the passage of a school year for an organisation, so parents, kids teachers, very senior managers. Um, and so I think that was made clear to everyone at the start. So to some extent, one of the key things to sort of far-reaching access is a level of honesty and, and about the ambition for the series so that everybody feels like a collaborator, even if it's not built on interview and it's built on actuality. Everybody sort of understands implicitly why you're in the room. I think, for me, yeah, the big prize always is, is obstock moments where you're in a room you shouldn't be really and you've got to a point where the camera is of no relevance to what's unfolding which is rare and just takes a lot of time so in that series we were filmed in three schools there were three amazing APs all local to Bristol where we filmed and some brilliant directors (coughs) that embedded in those schools for a year so I think it's being having lots of conversations about what you're trying to achieve rather than being sort of voyeuristic or expecting your contributors to kind of ignore your presence and sort of that level of, of trust won't happen unless you're feeling it's a joint enterprise. Um, and I think the reason, in some ways, the bar's raised all the time in terms of what, what access should be, but also, as in hospital, the reason school leaders were happy to be filmed is because they've got a, they want to tell the same story we do, which in this case was a, a, a kind of combination of what they saw to be an unfair Ofsted inspection uh, and a lack of money conspiring to... Re- I mean, the school fa- faced closure during the time we were filming. And so there's a le- in the same way that surgeons in hospital would turn to camera and say, I'm livid, I can't do an operation, that wouldn't have happened five years ago because people weren't at the end of their tenure mm-hmm. in our public sector. So you, you'd struggle to go into a business, I think, and get anything like that at the moment. But... Um, in certain, in certain parts of our tr- troubled economy, there is a level of <coughs> urgent honesty that viewers expect and contributors are happy to supply. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still... I, I was um, across all the films in the series and was doing some work in the schools, but not as much as I have done in previous projects. But as everybody's saying, it's about just being face-to-face with your contributors and really that trust is built by APs who are probably two, three years into the industry spending meaningful time with kids and teachers... And just being nice. I mean, it, being yourself, being warm, being interested in people creates human relationships that you build the trust on. It's not actually about big, highfalutin ideas or about being clever and manipulative. It, it, it's about just be, creating friendships, basically, that, that you build the filming around. I always think straight. it's like the more important than all the stuff you do and say when the camera's on record is all the stuff you do when it's not. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, absolutely. And you, and you, equally, what I think is really important is being brave. No one ever minds a difficult question as much as you think they will. Have I said that right? You're always going to worry more about what a, bat, what a difficult question will do to the access than actually happens. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've throughout my career been surprised at what directors I've worked with or producers I've worked with have been prepared to ask, mm-hmm. even when I've been terrified of the access falling down. And as you learn more and more, you think, my God, actually, people want, people want an honest dialogue and people like being asked difficult questions. And if they're agreeing to tell their story, then you're not really doing them a proper service if you hold back and don't ask the questions. That, what, what you never want is the viewer to have a question in their mind that you haven't 
asked or explored in some way. Um, so you've got to be sort of brave and nice all at the same time. Right. And that moves seamlessly onto the subject of questions. This is beautiful. This is like <laughs> this is honestly. <laughs> anyway, does anybody have any questions for the panel? If you just wait for the microphone, that'd be brilliant. Um, obviously, you're you're um, working very closely with your contributors and opening up their character flaws, making them public as well in a lot of cases. How do you deal with the, the fallout from that? You know, obviously you still have an ongoing relationship with them once the, 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 the films are finished. And it, yeah, really, really important uh, question. So you do have ongoing relationships with contributors, definitely. If it's on a massive scale, like that, those schools, for example, in that series, there was... I think there was 5,000 children that were in the institutions we filmed in. Um, your core contributor cast can grow to kind of upwards of 20, 30. So you do have ongoing relationships with them, but you also have to have really honest conversations that prepare contributors for broadcast of a programme, which nobody has any experience of until they're in a programme. Mm. And as programme makers, we have some experience of and a big responsibility. So you, you talk contributors through all the things they might not have anticipated about how Twitter might react, mm-hmm. what it means when unknowable, seemingly crazy people in the in- on the internet somewhere take a personal mm-hmm. dislike to you, how to process that. Mm-hmm. You work with psychologists that are, that, are, that are able to keep working with particularly vulnerable or, or contributors that are under 18 just to ensure that the impact of TX or broadcast isn't something that we can't sort of fully control and that people don't feel uh, that unprepared for. Yeah. I, I mean, we have direct experience of that on Three Identical Strangers because Natasha and Lawrence Perlman, who are both, both come off quite badly in the film, um, I think, um, although we worked very hard to make them both look as sort of reasonable as possible. <coughs> Lawrence Perlman especially is, is quite a strange man and was quite unpleasant to me off camera for a large sort of amount of time before filming. Um, and since has a sort of you know, he, he and Natasha have both had a couple of um, sort of hate, hate mail, email type things. People, people in America have just found them and sort of said, you know, you're Nazi experimenters and stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, it's really difficult, but we, you have a duty to, to sort of be fair to everybody in your film, right? And, and we had worked very hard to make, to represent them fairly based on what they said during interview. Um, and then also, still after after the film has been broadcast, when they come to you with an issue, you know, you're still working hard to kind of reassure them about how to deal with that. Like you said, how to you know not engage with stuff, that, you know, feedback they might get that might not be particularly favourable. But it's very difficult if they are saying things that you feel are quite um, unpleasant, I guess. Or, or I mean, he, he was so strange when we filmed him. The way he sat, the way he was laughing, it was. You know, and Tim and Michael worked really hard in the edit to tone him down, and that's the the most toned down version we could make of him. Um, so it was really hard. But I think when you're, if you if you're going into something with the best intentions to be fair to people and to represent them accurately, then we felt really confident that we have done the best job we have we could do. At, you know, presenting the reality of what he said. You know, so we felt sort of that we'd done our, our best at that, if that makes sense, and could, you know, push back at him and if we needed to, which we haven't had to, but um, to just explain why he comes across in the film the way he does. Um, You're weird. So. <laughs> <laughs> I wow. hope you don't have to have that conversation. <laughs> no self-awareness. At the Any other questions? Down the front. Um, you mentioned uh, about social class and obviously the documentaries that are um, directly or indirectly, but more so directly, um, pointing the finger of blame at the government. So, uh, and I'm just wondering if you think that there is more room now to be critical, um, whereas before perhaps it wouldn't be broadcast because it was blatantly... Um, pointing the finger of blame, but you know you're talking about the institutional racism, um, the, the 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 power structures, the issues with uh, 
benefit that it's bankers that are to blame rather than benefit claimants. That seems to be starting to become more um, apparent on, on documentaries anyway. Do you think there's more room to be that little bit more um, kind of exposing of, of what critical, basically? Mm -hmm. I think there's I think there's much more I think there's more room and demand for being kind of analytical and that might well lead in a fairly direct way to suggesting someone somewhere might have been to blame for mismanagement of some kind that now impacts on people. I don't think in a documentary that isn't sort of labelled as political and isn't very clear in its viewpoint, i.e. authored by someone who's very sort of straightforward in saying this is my opinion, what we what we wouldn't do in an obstock is sort of Make it political with a capital P, but when you but you're there to to explore stuff as you find it. So if you find a school that doesn't have enough money, in the program we we have contributors saying they think the problem is there's not enough money. Um, they might even link it to austerity. Um, it's important that those voices are fairly represented in balance with any others that might be saying different things on the ground. So I think we I think there's more scope for complexity and exploring the reasons why and the layers above our contributors rather than just sampling the misery. Um, but you know, that should and could lead anywhere. And what we shouldn't do in, in Obstock is kind of come to it with a very obvious political opinion and look to find material that services that thesis um, because that wouldn't be balanced. Any other questions? Thanks. Just to go back to the informed consent uh, discussion as well, at what point do you get the release forms signed? Oh, that's so nice. Well, <laughs> uh, well it, I know it's complicated. It's, yeah, whenever, we, we did those before I we came on. They offered me a gin and tonic as well at the same time. I think whenever it's appropriate, there are times, you know, it's not, I, I never find it useful for your relationship to turn up on the day with a camera and say, here's the form, sign it. You know, so there's stuff that I, even if your production manager is badging you for the forms on day four of your shoot, it, it's some, you just need to do it when the time is right. I think if you've got a good relationship and you all know, you've had honest conversations about why you're there and they know what the film is and you, you know, they've allowed you to come to their house and film them, then you should feel relatively secure in your access. But I think if you're doing a bigger institutional series, that's all signed off way before you'd even commit to, to getting there. But I think... Um, you know, you, you're, if you've got footage with somebody where they're clearly te talking to you on camera, then they have obviously consented to you filming them, you know. But um, there's obviously a line where you do need to get something on paper. But I think you just sort of take the opportunity when a, I'm, I'm relaxed about that. <laughs> As an exec, I'm not terrified <laughs> <Sorry>. of it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, <laughs> but I'm sure every director says they'll be fine, they'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. So any questions? I think there's any other questions. There's a, there's a guy at the back. I don't know if you can see. Oh, him. I can't. He's, sorry, he's had his hand up. I, I'm, I apologise. Sure. <laughs> sure. um, well, I suppose. I mean, first of all, that Becky, you mentioned that you started off in uh, journalism. You know, as I can, I mean, obviously that really speaks more for your own personal career, progress, career path. And I mean, would you say the fact that it ended up in program production and documentary? Would you say? Obviously, it goes without saying now that journalism's moved on a lot from print, it's very much online, that's really the state of media now, but would you say that um, that's becoming more and more a way of telling stories, as kind of crossing that platform into other creative industries, other platforms, that it's about producing something, like programmes that are out there, rather than just towards maybe, you know, uh, publishing articles? Um. I don't know. I I guess it's just that documentaries are storytelling and journalism is storytelling, right? So they they are sort of. I mean, I didn't study journalism. I did sociology and criminology, but um, I just wanted to write actually stories about people and, and features, and it's just sort of ended up moving into television as a format for for doing it. So. Um, I don't know, but I think if you have an inquisitive, if you're curious about people in the world or whatever it could be, you know, I mean, you, there's all different types of documentaries and different types of factual mm -hmm. television, you know, um, it, you might want to tell stories about nature and do David Attenborough type stuff or human interest type things or, you know, current affairs -y type stuff, which obviously journalism lends itself well to because you're going to need those skills to tell the stories and to, um, you know, to sort of find the leads that you need and piece everything together. So, 
Uh, I guess it depends, um, you know, how you're how you want to come into it. But you you can certainly transfer all of those skills, I think, into documentaries. It's useful, and you just need to be able to talk to people and and listen. I think is really important. You just need to listen to what people are telling you, so that you can you know, pick up on actually what they're really saying and not think too much about what you want to bring to something, you know. Jack, yeah. you went from, you, you were thinking of drama or filmmaking, you know, so you were thinking of fiction. You yeah. know, what was the point where you actually realised that you wanted to tell other people's story? When, you, when did you move away from lies? <laughs> <laughs> As I regard all drama. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I guess it just at some point it just became more interesting. Mm-hmm. And uh, also possibly the fact that like, all, the, all the people I knew who were even making their first feature were still skint and living in a garret. And, mm-hmm. you know... It, like not nobody gets into documentary making to get rich, mm-hmm. but um, but there is a certain. I, I, I've worked as a grip on feature films, mm-hmm. a lot of them with first-time directors, and there's loads of people who make one film and never make another mm. feature film, you know, and uh, and and also I just I don't know I just at some point it stopped being a day job. I was just more interested in how how you can tell stories from real life. And I sort of try and inject dramatic tropes or mm-hmm. th- things into that. I mean, I still, I love, I love watching movies, you know, and mm-hmm. so I try and put some of those things in. But, um, yeah, it just, it just um, I, I think the other thing about docs is that I'm quite indecisive. And mm-hmm. so you can actually make those decisions way down the line, you know. You can mm-hmm. get into the edit and go, ooh. And <laughs> flip it all around, so it's not like a drama where you've scripted it all first. I mean, I, I haven't. I'm a nightmare for execs. I haven't written a script for about ten years, <laughs> like before going out uh-huh. to shoot. And uh, yeah, and so I, I kind of like that where mm-hmm. you you go on instinct, and then in the edit, that's where you go, mm. mm-hmm. you know. I think that's fair enough. That's not bad. <laughs> uh, sorry, just on that as well, Jack. Uh, the other thing I was going to add with that was obviously you mentioned yourself, you know, coming up through the BBC and then branching out into like freelancing and all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just wonder. Obviously, background working with the BBC would stand you in good stead to do that. But would you say the industry as a whole's kind of in a transition state to? how easy it is now to start off freelancing, just the state of things are. Netflix being a more popular platform for producing this kind of content, for example, or... I'd, I'd say you, you probably still have to do, do your... Um, what's the word? You know, do your apprenticeship somewhere, you know? Um, I mean, one, one, one thing that is different is that I think you can now make stuff in a way that I couldn't when I was starting out. You know, you can literally shoot on your phone, Mm -hmm. edit it on your laptop, and um, you can have you can have a showreel, you know, which may be rusty and rugged and and, but um, I would I would definitely say if if you've if you've got an interesting story, there's kind of no excuse now not to go out and do something Mm -hmm. because it's 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 pretty cheap. Um, But yeah, I yeah I, I guess I had some stuff under my belt by the time I went went freelance. Um, I'm sort of lost actually as to how to answer that. I'm sorry. I think everybody everybody's freelance these days. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's, um, it's okay if you're not somebody that has lots of ideas or really interested in cameras or has made lots of your own films or don't quite have the confidence to do that too because there's ways in. The brilliant thing about our industry is it takes all comers and there's whatever your personality type, there's a sort of genre and a role that will suit you. Mm-hmm. And I think you don't... So, so it's wonderful if you've gone out and explored your own sort of craft, but equally you'll learn the most you'll ever learn from working with people that are already doing it in some way. And so you could be someone that's good at writing, you could be someone that's good with people, terrible with people, you know, interested only in techni- technicality, um, and you're sound men usually. <laughs> you're sound men, which is a slightly, slightly dying art. Uh, you, can be, you can be a grumpy sound guy if you want. Or no offence, sound woman. Um, so I'd, yeah, there's no, there's no. Don't feel any great pressure to be the finished article uh, with an amazing Vimeo reel mm-hmm. when you're starting out. Yeah, I, I, that's, I think that's really good advice. One of the things I always found when I. Um, 
was kind of early on in my career was I was terrified by the fact that like all the men seemed to know about the cameras and, and be like oh god like what do those buttons I don't know anything about this camera and I went on a camera course of t- two days and still didn't really know anything about the camera and, and you know you sort of think oh well cameramen are supposed to know about the camera and sound men are supposed to know about sound and, and more and more what you now are, are shooting PD where you have to go and film shoot and do everything and produce and do ten jobs because budgets are tight and often that's a good way to make a more intimate film anyway so um, I found that really scary and <laughs> actually you just need to get hands on with the camera and go sh- shoot some stuff and that can be at home at the weekend filming your mum make tea or whatever like it doesn't matter or if you're lucky you get on a big series where there's lots of people there's shooting APs and there's cameras and somebody you know there'll be an opportunity to, to film a, a sequence or a scene you know whatever and so you will learn that stuff and you, you might never be I mean I'm not going to be an award winning DOP but if I have a film to make then I will hire one to do that because that will be a really important thing that I will want a professional cameraman to, to do and then I will direct or produce it so um, don't be afraid of the things that you don't know and um, you know I think for me documentaries the content is so important that faffing around with lenses you know if you're missing really great content because you're so worried about how it looks I, I find that um, you know, I look, watch a lot of stuff and I think this looks amazing, but my mum doesn't give a flying shit what it looks like. Mm-hmm. It could be filmed on an iPhone. Yeah, she, yeah. She's just like, wow, what, what, what this story is about. Yeah. So I think that mm-hmm. that is really important to remember and not feel um, sort of, um, you know, scared of, of what somebody very technical or very advanced on a camera, for example, can do. Mm-hmm. Completely. So I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. So I want to thank um, our fantastic panel. Just a reminder that your ticket today's, uh, to today's session will also give you access to the closing drinks reception and play, and play party. I'm not sure what a play party is. Is this a new thing, a play party? <laughs> Sounds seedy, I'm sure it's not. <laughs> it's in the long gallery on the fifth floor from 6.15. Do come along. That's a phrase that rhymes off me very easily. It's a fantastic opportunity to network and discuss today's panels. If you liked what you've seen today, um, then you should consider becoming a BAFTA Scotland member. There are events, screenings and masterclasses all year round. They're all fantastic. It's a great organisation. So check out the BAFTA Scotland website info for more information. All right. Thanks very much for your uh, time and your questions. Cheers. <laughs>